Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. This episode is going to encapsulate all of Peter and I's work for the past year producing content for season one. In season one, we interviewed some amazing leaders from fields including business, medicine, and the military. We learned some awesome lessons about personal growth, leadership development, and health systems literacy. And Peter and I have been working hard to put this episode together to encapsulate some of those main ideas. Before we jump into the topic for today's episode, we also wanted to introduce some exciting new things that we have coming out for season two. Peter and I are going to produce a rebrand of Leading the Rounds, where we have new content for everyone supporting us. We're also looking to expand our team and bring on some social media creators. So if that's something that you're interested in and passionate about, keep an eye out for our social media pages if you're interested in joining our team. We're also going to have in season two a few new ways of supporting us, including Patreon and being an Amazon affiliate. So keep up to date with our social media pages and podcasts for more information about that. In this episode, we're going to discuss the five rules for leadership. These are themes that have come up in episodes that we've recorded in season one, and we're going to bring together ideas from all the different people we interviewed and all the different fields that they were involved in to give you guys five rules that will help you as a future medical leader. We look forward to seeing you in season two, and we hope you enjoy the five rules for leadership. Rule one, chase purpose. Purpose is important, in my opinion, just because it's like the where you start. It's like who you are and what you're working forward to. And any leader that you can ask, they have a purpose. And I think our episode with Dr. Barksdale was a very good illustration of his own purpose, but your purpose will be specific to you. And I think it's important that it's well-defined and it really is in line with the values of who you are as a person. When I think about purpose, I think about the decision that takes care of all other decisions. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult throughout life to consistently make good decisions if you don't know where your alignment is. So if your alignment is you want to be a better medical student and you don't define that ahead of time, then each day you have to make a decision. Do I study? Do I do something else? Do I watch Netflix? Do I you know, put in work? Whereas if you have a purpose, if you have a value defined beforehand, you can just act in line with your values instead of making individual decisions every day. Yeah, I think this is very reminiscent of Hamza's story as a student where he was struggling and he saw this steep decline in his grades. And, and once he kind of found purpose, his, he turned his whole life around. So let's pass it over to him. I was a very bad student. I'm just going to put that out there. Let's get that on the record. Um, First, second, third year university, the, the mark steadily slid from B plus to B minus to B to C plus, C minus, and I started failing courses in my third year. And the reason why is because there was a fundamental disassociation between the premise upon which I entered post-secondary and what my passions were. I felt like I just had to follow through with the blueprint that had been laid out before me by guidance counselors, by my parents, by... Um, you know, society at large, I felt like I had to sort of fall into the career trinity, at least in the South Asian immigrant culture of doctor, lawyer, engineer, and any other job outside of that was not honorable, was not befitting of the lifestyle that, uh, you know, people outside of my 
you know, people that weren't me had envisioned for myself. And so there I was, this terrible student showing up to class late, leaving class early and uh, on the verge of dropping out. I was falling through the, cla- the cracks, essentially. What changed for me is I stumbled into a leadership development workshop at the University of Toronto Scarborough that Drew Dudley was hosting. And he said the words that changed my life. He said that you don't just go to post-secondary, you don't go to college or university just to get a job, just to get a degree. You go there to develop yourself holistically. The one thing that will not change regardless of whatever context we're in. So you could be in in a different industry, you could be in a different position in your career, a different time in history, but leadership is always going to start from the inside and work its way outwards, not the other way around. You don't become a good leader because somebody promotes you and gives you the corner office, gives you the title, gives you the money, puts you in charge of a team, right? That doesn't make you a good leader. That is situational. The leader that you are is built and honed well in advance of whatever that leadership moment is. So continue to invest in developing your personal leadership philosophy, articulate your leadership philosophy, articulate your leadership values, and continue to invest in that. I thought that was such a powerful quote and segment from Hamza because it shows that once he really defined who he was and what he wanted with his life, he was able to push through the difficulties. He was able to uh, really follow his passions. And the way I think about this in terms of leadership too is Hamza said it there, leadership starts from the inside out. And so when you define your purpose, you're able to also lead others in a way that's aligned with that and is very is purpose-driven instead of whimsical and and going with avoiding pain or punishment. Absolutely. And and personally I found Hamza's story very relatable to my own. I wasn't always the best student. He was definitely preaching to the choir on that one. And it reminds me of our favorite Brene Brown quote, which is who we are is how we lead. And if you don't know who you are, you don't have a purpose, you're not going to be an effective leader. And I think another person that brought up leadership and purpose in a great way was Drew Dudley. Check out this quote from Drew about how purpose allows us to define who we are and that in turn helps us make decisions more efficiently and makes better decisions in leadership. One of the things that makes it so hard to make tough decisions is we don't know what criteria we're using to make decisions. First thing I try to tell anybody as we go through any programs that I work with is you have to take the time to define the things you want to define you. So if you want to be someone of uh, generosity, if you want to be someone of integrity, someone of respect, you have to take a moment to say, integrity is a commitment to what? You have to imagine someone highly intelligent walking up to you saying, English is not my first language. I've never heard that word before. Can you explain it in the simplest terms using the phrase a commitment to? Because most of, the, most of the values that we use to judge ourselves and judge other people, we have never defined. And if you don't define the values you want to define you, if you don't say, these are the behaviors consistent with those, if you don't turn it into a finish line, so you know when you cross it, you could be, you probably are, embodying integrity, respect, accountability every day, but you're never giving yourself permission to celebrate that fact. And the celebrations in our lives and our careers give us momentum. They give us strength. They give us faith in ourselves. And I believe setting goals is planning celebrations. And we set goals for our careers. We set goals for our financial lives. I think that leadership is spending just as much time and just as much energy and resources setting and chasing goals for your character every day as you do for your job and for your career and for your financial life. Because ultimately, 
too often our lives are driven by our to-do list at the expense of our to-be list. And without getting into too much specifics about the actual day one process, what we effectively are trying to do is when you identify your values and you define what they mean, you can actually use them as criteria for decision-making. Because if you haven't identified your values and defined what they mean right now, what criteria have you been using to make decisions your whole life? Because let's face it, once you have your values clear, your decision-making is simple but not easy. You look at the options available to you. You look at the values you have said, these are what, who I want to define me as a person. And you ask which one of these options is most consistent with those values. And we embrace the fact, as sucky as it is, that often the option that's most consistent with your values sucks. It doesn't allow you to get what you want, avoid punishments. But if you haven't identified and defined your values, what criteria have you been using to make decisions? And my guess is for most of us, and, I, and I'm including myself in this, the criteria that most often we've used to make decisions in our lives is which option will avoid the most consequences right now. And, and that's not leadership decision-making. So the first thing I say to anybody, what would be in a curriculum for physicians or anyone is what are the values you want to live every day because your job will make it easy to ignore doing things that will embody those values because you're so busy doing your to-do list. Try to work your to-be list into your to-do. I think to put it simply, Drew's saying you should invest in yourself and not just you know your, your, your wellness or your health, which are both very important, but also what you really want in life and what is fulfilling to you. You know, invest in time by yourself, journal, read books that, you know, interest you and, and don't just take everything at face value. I think you should always try to build your own philosophy, which would eventually become your purpose and define the values and characteristics you hope to embody in any situation. I think that's a really great point and something I struggled with for a while. And I didn't even know I was struggling with it because mm -hmm. I was so busy through undergrad and getting into medical school that I never took time to step away from it and reflect on. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I spent so much time working for that, that I feel like I didn't define what kind of doctor I wanted to be or the person I wanted to be as a physician. And I think yeah. that's what it can be so easy to just never do that because life is so fast and we're constantly bombarded with, you know, whether it's social media or whether it's, you know, just climbing the ladder of medicine, mm -hmm. it's just so easy to just keep working and never reflect, never take time to be alone and, and think about what you want for your life. I 100% agree. And it doesn't even stop in pre-med. It, it's in medical school too. I felt like I was, you know, running faster in medical school than I was as a pre-med. Um, and it's like, you know, what Dr. Barksdale said, you know, when you're, when you're in a race, the first 30 years is like a sprint when you're in your career. And, and it goes by so fast, you think you're, you're king of the world and you're winning everything um but that's not sustainable that's that's not effective in the long run you know and i think purpose is what what helps you build that sort of emotional endurance to run the, the marathon and and you know as things build up in life like families other obligations hardship it's it's important to know where you're coming from in order to kind of continue forward towards those initial goals that you hope to accomplish as a, as a doctor, as a leader, as a anything really. And I think once you define your purpose in life and what you think your philosophy is, you're more equipped 
to handle the challenges that come your way. Rule number two, bend, don't break. When I think about this rule, resilience and adaptability come to my mind. And accepting the fact that in medicine, we're going to fail so many times and we have to have the ability to accept that and realize that as long as you adapt, as long as you become better because of that, the future is better. Yeah, I think this is a really uh, poignant rule for 2020 and this whole past, you know, the pandemic with Black Lives Matter, with all the hate that's going around, people are people are, are really being challenged. And when I when I think of, you know, people that had to manage the pandemic specifically, I think about a conversation with Steve, who, you know, sat in a very high position, was definitely dealing with a lot of stress and managing a lot of people. Um, and I, I kind of met the way he spoke about the pandemic. He talked about fear. And, and he seemed to you know, really be able to bend under that, that, that pressure on him and never broke. Here's a quote from Steve about his thoughts on resiliency. It might surprise some, but um, certainly as a surgeon, um, you, you never spend a lot of time thinking about your successes and what you've done right, because that's your baseline expectation. I expect to come to work every day. I expect to give everybody here my very, very best. But, but it's a humbling profession. There are adverse events. There are unexpected events. Those are the things that you go over in your mind constantly. And it could be 10 years later, and you can play a tape back in your head of something that happened. And then you hope that you're better for that having happened. But the, the visceral pain that that causes is what you remember and what you try to, you know, to avoid. So what I would tell uh, young um, surgeons, doctors, med students is in this profession, whether you're going to be fully clinical, whether you're going to be an academician, whether you're going to be a bench researcher, you somehow have to find a way to embrace failure and learn tremendous lessons from failure that make you instantly better than you were before. You don't, you, from success, you feel good. It's other people ask you about it. It doesn't make you better that you were really good that day. You just, you did your job. But when you fail, and you, failing may be a clinical event, failing may be a grant that wasn't funded. And you were certain, oh, this is the best grant I ever wrote. No, 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 no. Don't get stuck on that. From, from that failure will come a review, a, a critique, and take that, process it, you're instantly better. And so I would say never let failure derail your plans. Never let failure make you think that this is too difficult to do because there is no one in any meaningful leadership position uh, that hasn't failed many times. I love that segment from Dr. Stilianos because he talks about becoming better through the mistakes and through the failures. And I think part of that is putting yourself in situations where you're not 100% sure that you can be successful all the time and getting out of your comfort zone. And another person that talked about this was Dr. Barksdale. Check out this segment from his episode. 
to me, the most important um, skill set in order to be a, a successful leader is adaptability. And so I have taken a deep dive in under, and you become adaptable by self-awareness. I've taken a deep dive in understanding who I am as a person and what the opportunities that exist for me to be better. And when you are very self-aware, then you can get into the water in a gradual fashion as opposed to jumping into the icy water and recognizing that maybe you're going to get a little frostbite in the, in the beginning. But as your body acclimates <clears throat> to the things that are uncomfortable, you become more comfortable being uncomfortable. One, one thing that I wish we had the opportunity to talk to Bar Dr. Barksdale more about was his anti-fragility initiative, which I hope we can bring him back and talk about this, but it's based on a book called Anti-Fragile, which the general premise is de to develop a mindset that makes you better in hardship. And, you know, we had a lot of leaders on this podcast that have struggled greatly with that kind of hardship. And, you know, one that comes to mind is Drew Dudley, and he struggled with addiction and loss of his loved ones. Um, it is a really powerful story. He also talked about, I remember a quote from Drew that said something along the lines of there's power in knowing that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you has already happened mm -hmm. and that you made it through that. So now you can encounter anything that life throws at you. And I think as I a, think as a person, but also as a leader, that is so powerful to realize that whatever comes your way, you can push through it and you, you can get, get through it. Do you know what Kintsugi is? I do not. It's a, it's a Japanese art form where they take broken dishes or dishes that have been cracked and they repair them with gold. And I think a lot of, a lot of adaptability is, is kind of like that art of Kintsugi. Um, so, and, and if you ever like Google these stuff, this, they look really nice and really pretty. And I think just any kind of hardship that you can, that you can weather and, and that you are able to manage will ultimately make you better. I think if we think about medical systems as well, this is the premise of quality improvement as an initiative. Mm -hmm. Let's take a critical look at a mistake we made instead of just shying away from it. And then let's break that mistake down, find out exactly why it happened, study it instead of pushing it away and not looking at it. And then let's make sure we improve because of it and help patients be safer because of that. I, I just want to touch on the fact that like Dudley and Dr. Van Dyke, they both had really compelling stories about how they, they were able to weather their, their struggles, you know, Dudley with, you know, Drew with um, addiction and Dr. Van Dyke with mental illness, both illness, both very prevalent in society and both very um, thing, hard things to deal with. And I think they both became very successful in a way because they learned resilience through their, their difficulties. The one thing I really liked about Dr. Van Dyke's approach to managing her mental illness was having a low threshold for reaching out. I think in medicine, we're, we're taught to be the, the providers, the, the people giving the care, but we should be caring for ourselves. We should be willing to reach out to people that we care about. Like, you know, if I ever had problems, Caleb, I would be happy to, you know, reach out to you. I think cultivating that vulnerability is something that's a little bit lost in medical training. Resilience is not always just dealing with it yourself. Mm-hmm. Like failure in general is hard. Difficulties, challenges are hard. And by being resilient, by bending, not breaking, we don't by any means mean 
tough it out. Don't tell anyone and continue on with your life. Ben, don't break doesn't mean that, but instead means find ways that you can cope with this and find ways, whether it's reading, whether it's reaching out to others, whether it's receiving counseling, that you can be better because of the circumstances that life has thrown at you. Rule number three, be curious. As a burgeoning physician scientist, I feel like I have to question everything. But that's not the perspective that I want to draw here. I think being curious is less about questioning things like authority. It's it's more about asking why. And Caleb and I are both people that want to do a little bit of quality improvement work in our future. And there's this thing called the five whys. And that helps you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into um, into the thing, like the, the root cause that you're trying to analyze in a specific situation. And um, I think one person had a very fun answer to our, our regular question, uh, which is what books do you do you recommend to young medical leaders, was Dr. Steve Swenson, who himself has done a lot of quality improvement work. I think one of the most important things for joy in work and, uh, and, and to thrive, and Marine Bizignano taught me this, is to be curious, to always ask why, or why not, or what if, and to always say, well, that's interesting, but why did that happen? And so I think the spirit of inquiry, the spirit of curiosity, the spirit of connecting to the joy of learning is, is, is how I would answer that. And so, so instead of saying, read this book or that book or this article, I would say, always ask questions, be curious, keep learning, and you'll never get old. Another thing that Steve Swenson talks a lot about is burnout. And I think curiosity can be one of the antidotes to this. I think it's so easy in healthcare to just continue with the status quo. And, and Atul Gwanda uses a phrase called becoming a cog in the healthcare machine and just being another white coat in the system. But I think curiosity can be one of the antidotes to this. If you're constantly asking, why do we do this? Why, if you're constantly learning more, curiosity leads to, to learning and to constantly wanting to improve yourself and improve your knowledge. And I think that can be a great antidote to becoming burnt out. I think it, especially in the current healthcare system where people are adding layers and layers and layers to try to address questions without going back and asking themselves, why did we put these first layers on in the first place? You build this like Jenga tower of rules and regulations that are so impossibly complex to understand as one person that you kind of put yourself in like a like a mobius strip of uh confusion and you're just going around and around trying to figure out where where did the whole thing go wrong when the root cause might just be right below your feet i think also curiosity doesn't just have to be about medical knowledge as well and someone who i thought illustrated this fantastically was dr ed cregan when he talked about being curious about your patients. Take a listen to this clip from Dr. Ed about just that. But going back to humanity, you gotta know where the patient lives. You must know what kind of work they do. 
and the key to the kingdom, ask them about their pets. Because no patient can talk about their pets without bringing out the cell phone and showing their pets. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. A few years ago, in our lung cancer clinic, I was asked to see a gentleman who was in his early 90s, and he was disheveled, he was unkempt, he had stage four non-small cell lung cancer. He looked like he was very ill. And scattered throughout the history was the term doctor, DR period. And I asked him about that. He said, well, I'm not a doctor, I'm a PhD. Okay. He th then I said to him, well, well, tell me, what was your doctorate in? And he said, son, called me son, he said, have you heard of Los Alamos? Have you heard of J. Robert Oppenheimer? Have you heard of the Manhattan Project? Have you heard of an airplane called the Enola Gay? This was the chief physicist architect of the atom bomb project, which transformed the world that we live in. Bam, all of a sudden, he was not simply an elderly disheveled patient, but he was a piece of history. So you ask patients what they do and it becomes magical. Now, Epic is part of your world. Yeah. You, you know, I defy you to quickly access Epic, username, password, blah, 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 and find out the patient's belief system find out the name of the pet, and find out what they do for a living. It's there someplace. So how can you and I knock on the door of the exam room or the hospital and minister to that patient without knowing what they do? Incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. So that is the only solution to put the joy back in medicine. However, it's not cost effective, but it is effective in keeping our souls intact so we can continue on this sacred journey. And this is a sacred journey. This is like, not, not like making toasters. This is a, a, a sacred calling. But one of the phenomena that has happened at Mayo Clinic and at most major centers, and certainly in Big Blue, every leader... Every clinical leader had a clinical footprint. So if they were the chair of ophthalmology, they saw patients. If they were head of internal medicine, they had a clinical exposure, albeit limited, but it gave them a reality check of the messy, gritty business of modern medicine. But today, medicine has become so complicated that the C-suite people are off on a spaceship someplace and they sometimes don't recognize the needs of patients and families, the needs of the insurance people, our personal needs. And sometimes their recommendations don't acknowledge the personhood of us and the personhood of patients and families. In short, um, never take anything at face value. Try to understand why the systems are they why the, they are the way that they are, and go beyond just your medical knowledge to understand medicine. Um, as Dr. Van Dyke said, she would encourage all medical trainees to explore thoughts, beliefs, feelings, and perspectives other than their other than their own. 
And it's undoubtedly that you're going to meet somebody with a different political belief, different um, religious ideology, and you're going to have to be able to engage with these patients or colleagues. And being curious as to what they believe and why they believe it will actually help you understand them better in a way. Rule number four, cultivate empathy. Almost every interviewee that we had on our podcast this year brought up empathy. Whether it's relating to patients, relating to the people you're leading, or relating to friends and family around you, empathy is a vital skill for a future medical leader. One of my favorite quotes from this season about empathy and something I continue to think about to this day is something that Drew Dudley said in our episode with him. Take a listen. Yeah, I think the question always, too, is that you try desperately to identify what the person across from you might be afraid of. Uh, and that's hard, right? Sometimes it's just a really quick interaction. But most of the dysfunction or the unhappiness in this world is rooted in fear. Like you're going to lose something. You're going to fail at something. And so to be able to say, even when you get up to a cashier who's having a really rough day, you know, you're, they're afraid that it's not going to get any better that day. And so in that moment, by identifying their fear is that they got three more hours of the crap they put up with, with everybody in line or people, you know, and it's tough to frontline workers now, like there's a, a political difference over whether you wear a mask in a store or not. So all of a sudden these individuals are now also being you know, attacked for things that aren't in their control. But what they're afraid of is it just won't stop. What they're afraid of is that they're going to crack under this, uh, under this constant onslaught of being treated like less than they are. And I think that in that moment, when you can sort of take a moment and be like, what would I be afraid of in this moment? And then finding a way to interact, a, a moment of smile, a, a tossing a chocolate bar on the counter, and then when it gets to say, no, no, that's for you. Uh, those types of moments, for me, it's like, how can I find a way to give this person something they didn't know they needed and they didn't know they wanted in this interaction? And part of the mindset, too, is like, I try to interact with everybody, assuming not a single person has been nice to them all day. And there's something, of, I know that's such a dark way, but that is such a interesting way of framing how you want to enter into a conversation. If just, I guess if you think about it, if before you went into a room, you were told that the person in this room has been treated like crap by everyone who talked to them today, you then have a decision on how you want to treat them. And almost all of us would seize the opportunity to be the change there, right? To say, I, like, I have a chance here to make this person's life significantly better. We seize it. But I just kind of try to imagine that's the case with everybody. Some people very quickly let you know that hasn't been the case, but it really does change how, because you, it reinforces to you how much an individual interaction with this person can change the course of how they feel in that moment. And I like being reminded of that. And so I've sort of trained myself to be like, what are they afraid of? And let's imagine no one has been even remotely kind to them today. And it really does impact your, the way you interact with other human beings. Now, very quickly, sometimes they make me be like, okay, no, screw you. But you try to go into every interaction with that concept. And I find it really helpful, just those two things. What I, what I really liked about this Drew Dudley quote is that he had a name for this moment, the lollipop moment, which is fantastic. Um, it's like, you know, it's one of those catchy ideas that kind of sticks with you. And I think when it comes to empathy, it's, not just something that comes naturally to everybody. You sometimes have to really think about being empathetic, um, especially as we said earlier, sometimes you like 
might not agree with someone's opinion. You might find it hard to empathize with them. And I actually felt this personally at um, our continuity clinic when there was someone who had a very different political belief than I did. And I had a really hard time relating to them, but I still have to provide care for them. I still have to be there for them and listen to them. And I had to sift through all of that, that bias that I might've had to really understand where they're coming from. And I think when you, you try to interact with everybody, assuming that they're either having a bad day or assuming that they, they, or even if they may, may not agree with you, I think you start to ingrain in that in yourself, the ability to see through all the, um, your differences and really be a good empathetic and helpful person. And I think you taking the moment to recognize that you weren't feeling empathetic, but then working towards it yourself allowed you to provide that patient with better care. Yeah. And another person who talked about this in relation to dealing with a patient was Dr. Ed Cregan in his episode. And he gave a great clip about how, being empathetic allowed him to relate to a patient and give extremely great care because he asked a simple question. Check out this clip from Dr. Ed. But empathy is the gift to walk in the shoes of that patient. And someone once made the comment, unless we are sick in our life, we know nothing. Unless we've been touched by illness, by sadness. Look at President-elect Biden. Talk about an empathetic individual where his wife and I believe a young daughter were killed in an automobile accident. His son survived the nightmare of war in the Middle East, comes back home, and I think the president-elect said he had a body fat of 7%. 7% tragically dies of a glioblastoma a year later. So the president-elect clearly has been inoculated with the virus of empathy. When we come from a place of empathy, I think it starts to not just change the way that you see somebody, but also change the way that they see you and they can feel like when you're truly empathetic, I think someone can feel that someone feels your empathy. And that's, you know, we've talked about it in our medical school classes, but that's the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is more one way than empathy. And when you start to practice empathy over sympathy, then you really start to improve the relationships of those around you. And I think when you think about the healthcare team, it's so important for leaders, doctors, residents, medical students to feel empathy towards others on the healthcare team and recognize that, you know, when somebody snaps at you or when you have the urge to snap at someone else, they might be having a horrible day or you might be having a horrible day. And how can you both relate to each other, try to understand what's going on situationally so that it doesn't turn into a yelling battle or it doesn't turn into a conflict that can't be resolved. Or like a a festering wound that just never gets addressed, even. Yeah, 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 definitely. Rule five, change the culture. In Dr. Steve Swenson's book, he had this really great quote from Angela Davis, which was, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world, and you have to do it all the time. And I think this kind of gets to the core of what Simon Fleming's message was, which was, that culture matters. Culture is so important and how we 
how we behave sets a tone for everybody else. And the better the culture, the better your team, the better the, the system. One of your past presidents said, I believe what I believe and I believe what I believe is right. Most people feel that way, right? And so if you need, you need to change what they believe, you need to change the idea that the, the culture we have is good and healthy and convince them that we can be and do better for our staff and our patients. And if you change people's minds that we can be better for our staff and our patients in a generation or two's time, you have changed healthcare, which means you have literally changed the world. But it primarily starts by that first step. When I think about what Simon said and how culture can change how a team functions, I'm so grateful that we were able to interview a few doctors from the Mayo Clinic. Because when I think of a great culture of patient safety, a great culture of treating the patient with the utmost respect and putting the patient first, that's what I think of. And we know that from reading Dr. Swenson's book. We know that from hearing about the Mayo Clinic. Even if you've never been there, it's well known that the culture there is very different. And the culture there is something that people all around the U.S. and all around the world want to emulate. Yeah, it precedes its reputation. And this goes back to actually our first point that be, their culture is based on their purpose. So they've, they've, they've started from the roots up to really build that successful culture. I think and that, that really highlights how it's not one individual of these rules that really makes the leader. It's, it's the way that you can seamlessly integrate these five and then every other rule that, you know, the ones that we're not talking about today are the ones that we have yet, let's, yet to learn, Caleb and I, as young leaders. It's cohesive. It's its own. It's a, it's a, it's a network of values and, and, and abilities that make an effective leader, especially an effective medical leader in a complex system such as healthcare. And when we think about building a culture, we want it to be centered around equality, justice, and around putting the patient first. And someone that we interviewed who showed this so well was Dr. Opara. Check out this clip from Dr. Opara. When, when they say representation matters, Caleb, Peter, it, it's not, it doesn't just matter. It is everything. When you hear and see yourself, you're like, I'm not, I'm not weird, <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm not that weird is bad. I love being weird in other things like, oh, I like eating chocolate with uh, habanero peppers. Like, you know, that's weird, but that's cool though. But I'm saying it's not weird to want what is right. It's not weird to fight for justice. It's not weird to um, to correct wrong. It's not weird. That's not weird. That is that is normal. What is weird is to not want those things. And so flipping the narrative to say, no, you're weird because you don't care about people. Why are you in medicine? <laughs> First of all, I love how passionate Dr. Opar is about changing culture and about fighting for justice. I think for me that that representation doesn't just matter. It is everything quote. That to me was one of the most impactful moments of the whole, the whole entire season. And and to, to hear her whole story about how she went off and um, she was feeling like she was underrepresented and then found all this empowerment in an international community of strong black women that she identified with. It was, it was an inspiring moment. And that to me kind of like what solidified it, it crystallized for me what, why diversity is important and, and how, how we have yet to actually reach that mark. 
the more that I, I listen to people like Dr. Barksdale, Dr. Opara, Dr. Fabian, the more I realize like being a good leader is about how you treat people. The so five rules for leadership could easily be the five rules for an effective marriage. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Thank you everybody for listening to this episode. We are we hope that you find uh, a lot of value in the five rules for leadership. And if there's any other rules that you feel like we missed or that you wanted to share, engage with us on social media. We're active on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. And as with every single episode, we like to end with our favorite question. And that is, what is your favorite books? So Caleb, what have been your two favorite books for the year? So I'm going to do three and I'm going to base oh, them around... Overachiever. Yep. I'm going to be an overachiever. I'm going to base them around what we started the season one with in the three facets of being a medical leader. So I'm going to give one personal development book, one leadership development book, and one health systems literacy book. So for personal development, I think I was thinking about this a lot. And I think for a medical leader, uh, my number one would be Mindset by Carol Dwick. And this goes along a lot with our point number two, our rule number two, um, Ben, don't break. And it, the main idea in this book is that you can either have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. And a growth mindset is someone who sees any failure that they make or they encounter as a way to learn and as a way to grow. And uh, Dr. Carol Dwick does a great job illustrating this with personal stories, with research. She's a psychologist, so she does research on this. And I think that's just a great book to learn about how to improve how you view the world. My leadership development book is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I don't think this is necessarily a, you know, self-help slash leadership categorized book. But isn't it more I, of an autobiography? It like is, a story of Nike? Yep, exactly. Yeah. It's an autobiography of Nike. But the reason why I picked it for leadership development is it shows you what it's actually like to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And it shows you how he had to make decisions with not enough information and how he had to inspire people about this idea that he was dreaming, even though they weren't making profits at the beginning, even though they were losing money and all the different things about building a brand, building something and being a leader. And I thought it was such a great story. And then Mm -hmm. also just shows you what it's like to be a leader and a very effective leader, obviously, because he, he founded Nike. And Mm -hmm. so that's my number one leadership development. And then health systems literacy, my number one book was An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. And for me, that this is just the book that taught me the most about health systems, whether it's why is healthcare so expensive? How does the business of healthcare work? Uh, why are there so many hands on the money that flows into healthcare? And so after I read this, I was just shocked because, you know, none of this you ever learned before med school, none of this you ever learned in med school, but it's just a very interesting view of how the money flows and how health systems work. Mm -hmm. Peter, what about you? What are your favorite book suggestions? Well, unfortunately, majority of my reading lately has been scientific articles and those don't count. Those don't count. They're totally different than books. So I'm not going to list any of my favorite articles, but (laughs) But I took a little bit of a different approach, and that was because I, I think you read more books than I did this year, which is I'm not mad about it. It's just a fact. Um, so I chose two books that I feel really impact the way that I lead myself and that have changed the way that I led myself throughout the past years of medical school. Yeah. Mostly, mostly the last year. 
especially since we started this podcast. And the first one is start with why. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm a huge Senec fan. Love Simon Senec. I follow him on Instagram. He puts out great content. And then I love the way that he sees the world. And that book for me totally captures and simplifies the reason why everybody needs a purpose. And it, it also kind of helps you work towards it. Um, the second book, and I talked about this one on the podcast too, but I think this had the biggest impact on me and helped me really manage myself better in medical school was essentialism. I think without reading um, the ideas in that book, I would have been way too, way too drawn, drawn out. I would have been way too like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? The phrase pulled in different directions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. spread out. Spread, uh, spread thin. thin. I was up uh, exactly there. It is. I would have been way too spread thin because medical school is just one of those things where there's just so much to do and you feel like everyone's doing cool stuff. But, but like I'm I'm doing cool stuff and that's kind of what I reminded <laughs> me and I think it's what helped me realize that like there are some things that are important to me like this podcast, like my research, like like getting good grades that are that make me me and make me a unique leader as a part to my peers who are working either in social justice or in volunteerism or anything else like that which are all great things, but that's not me. Because you had three, I'll throw an honorable mention, uh, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Didn't read it this year, but it's always a good one to go back to. Best wishes to all of our, our listeners. We hope that you read some great books this upcoming year. And we hope that you have some ideas and we look forward to hearing them from you. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for sticking with us. And we look forward to some exciting things in season two. Confetti Cannon.